Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of a Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. You can find Soul of a Nation on iTunes, Google Play, and on Sojo.net. For more news, resources, and reflections on the nation's health and moral crisis, visit Sojo.net. Today, I am delighted to be speaking with Representative James Clyburn about protecting voting rights at a critical time in our nation's history. James E. Clyburn is the Majority Whip, the third ranking Democrat in the United States House of Representatives, and currently serves as the Chairman of the House Select Committee on the Corona Crisis. He is also the Chairman of the Rural Broadband Task Force and the Democratic Faith Working Group as a longtime leader in the Congressional Black Caucus. As a national leader, he has championed rural and economic development, and many of his initiatives have become law. As the eldest son of an activist and minister, Representative Clyburn is grounded in his family, in his faith, and his public service. Thank you, Representative Clyburn, for being with us this morning. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for having me. So, Representative Clyburn, how's your spirit these days in the middle of all the stuff going on? How is your spirit? Well, I find myself leaning more and more on Scripture, believe it or not, having been born and raised in a parsonage and growing up, thinking that I was going to follow my father into the ministry. And when I went off to school, I I thought I would. But my dad always told me that uh, it was a calling. And so I kept listening, and I never heard the call. I'm not sure whether or not I ever received the call. I just didn't hear it. But then I went home to tell my dad that I, I, I did not think that I was going to go to the seminary, and you've heard me tell this often. He said to me on that occasion, in spite of the fact that I thought he was very disappointed, he said, well, son, I suspect the world would much rather see a sermon than to hear one. And I've always let that uh, inform my actions. And so today, how that day goes by, uh, when I don't think about that 11th chapter of Hebrews, the first verse, faith, the substance of things hoped for, uh, the evidence of things unseen. That, to me, is what I'm hearing and feeling almost every day. Well, that text is core for me as well. And my paraphrase of that, wonderful text is, hope means believing in spite of the evidence and then watching the evidence change. <laughs> well, that's a great way to put it. I might use that, uh, give you credit the first time. <laughs> I remember you once were speaking to a group of sojourners on the hill, and you told the story about not going into the ministry. And I said to you then, and I'll say it again, I think you did go into ministry. You served the Congress for nearly three decades. I think you are a minister to Capitol Hill and I would suggest one of the hardest parishes in the country. <laughs> so I think you have indeed gone into ministry. And you had a you had a conversation with faith leaders just last Friday that was very both pastoral for us and prophetic as well. And I remember you saying you were going to rename this voting rights restoration bill, the John Lewis bill, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. And there's the world of sense to do that. But for you, this is personal. This is personal. You had a deep personal relationship with John Lewis. 
which you share with us on the phone. How, how is how is this very personal for you and John Lewis? Well, thank you very much for that. Yes, John and I first met back in October 1960. It was our second meeting of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, a commonly called SNCC. The first meeting had taken place up in Raleigh, North Carolina in the spring of that year at Shaw University. Now, I don't remember seeing John there. I'm sure I did, but my memories of that meeting are not clear. I do remember in October because there was a, a disagreement that had cropped up between the students and Martin Luther King Jr., uh, who, as you know, was had become a disciple of nonviolence. He had uh, internalized the teachings uh, of Mahatma Gandhi, and uh, we were all about disobeying these unjust laws that, they, uh, that we knew would get us arrested. But up until that point, King had, not, had never been arrested. And so that was the little bone of contention between us. So King came to the campus that day to meet with us that weekend around the 15th of October. And we went into a meeting that night around 10 o'clock, which was supposed to be for about an hour. It was around four o'clock the next morning when we came out of that meeting. I came out, I always call that my Saul to Paul transformation. And John and I developed a relationship flowing from that weekend that lasted all the way up to his death. Even when he was ousted as chair of SNCC, I believe in 1966, when the uh, insurgents took over, those who thought that nonviolence was not the proper course, John did not change. He had, like King, he had internalized nonviolence. I tell people that most of us adopted nonviolence as a tactic. I certainly fall into that category. John. It, made, it became his way of life. And so when he got ousted from SNCC, John became very active with the Voter Education Project. He was director of it down in Atlanta, and I was chair of the Voter Education Project in Charleston, South Carolina. So we interacted throughout that period of time, and we were registering people to vote all over the South. You recall... Uh, that when the march took place across the Edmund Pettus Bridge back in 1965, March of that year, Bloody Sunday, it has come to be known, only 2% of African Americans in Alabama were registered to vote. So we had tremendous success getting people registered to vote. And John, subsequently, I started politics here in South Carolina. John started in Atlanta. He got elected to the city council. He ran for Congress, lost the first time. A lot of people forget that John lost his first attempt at Congress and won the second time uh, in a contest between him and another former SNCC member. And, of course, he goes to Washington in 1986, I believe. I got there. I got elected in 1992. And we became close friends. And we would talk all the time, working on various things. I looked at John really for spiritual guidance. He, he, he wore it and he lived it. And I often talk with him about things. He would always say to me, my brother, keep your eyes on the prize. Uh, that's one of the last things he said to me before he left, left the hill. So I thought it was fitting and proper for H.R. 4, the Voting Rights Act, Restoration Act is what we call it, 
to be renamed the John R. Lewis uh, Voting Rights Act. And it was done unanimously in the House and the Senate. I hope we'll take it up real soon. You know, you talk about your Saul, Saul of Tarsus to Paul conversion. And that 10, 10 o'clock to 4 o'clock meeting, I wish the nation could have been a fly in the wall to hear. That sounds like it was a conversion time for all of you, all in the meeting. Sometimes people mistake that nonviolence means to be non-confrontational. And indeed, it was the opposite on the Evan Pettus Bridge, as you just described for John Lewis. Absolutely. Nonviolent, and he risked his life. Uh, and so nonviolence should not be confused, right, with being non-confrontational. Absolutely not. Uh, you know, developing tension. You know, a King wrote about that so poignantly in his letter from the Birmingham uh, City Jail, which I call a very timeless document. Not quite as timeless as the Bible itself, but it's a, it's a timeless document to me. Uh, Inspired every time, like the Bible. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, 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 I read that letter often. I read it only once this year. I usually read it uh, around every January and reflect on what's going on around me. Uh, because in that letter, I can always find some solace as to uh, how I should conduct myself or uh, how I should respond to something. There are three things I read a lot. That letter is one of them. The Bible is the, uh, another. And I read McCullough's book on, on Truman a, a lot as well. Those are my three guiding uh, documents. Wow. Well, I didn't know. I suspected the first two. I didn't know that the book on Truman. McCullough's book on Truman, which is a big, big uh, volume of work, I keep it at my bedside. Uh, because every now and then, you know, you ask yourself in this business, what would Jesus do? But I often ask myself, what would Truman do? <laughs> so you've introduced a renewed bill, the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Act, which has passed the House. Tell us about why this legislative fix to the gutting of the Voting Rights Act is crucial to honoring the legacy of John Lewis. Well, when the, uh, John Lewis walked across that bridge, we had just gotten the, um, the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And Lyndon Johnson, uh, to his credit, was just a great guy, an outstanding president, I think, outside of uh, Abraham Lincoln, in spite of what the current argument of the White House may say. I think he was the most productive president on behalf of African-Americans in this country. You go through uh, 1965 and you can see all kinds of things taking place. Medicaid, Medicare, Elementary Secondary Education Act, Higher Education Act, all kinds of things that are still law today. And people tend to feel that the Great Society programs failed. They did not fail. These things are still law today. Also in that year was the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Now, the reason it is so important to me is Lyndon Johnson thought that with all these other things and having passed the Civil Rights Act of 64, that was enough for a while. But black poor folks felt differently because uh, the Civil Rights Act of 64 did not have voting in it. It did not have housing in it. And quite frankly, it only applied uh, to uh, employment in the private sector. It did not uh, apply to the public sector. I thought it was fitting and proper to rename this thing because when the Supreme Court gutted that act, 
what the Supreme Court said was what we did back in 1965, that formula was now outdated. Well, we have been updating it uh, every 15 to 20 years. Uh, but the court just decided to ignore that and threw it out and said, come up with a new formula. So John Lewis worked with Jim Sensenbrenner, a Republican from Wisconsin, uh, for seven years to update that law. And it, we got it updated and we passed it and sent it on to the Senate. And so I think it's really proper for John's name to go on it because uh, this is a new poignant Voting Rights Act that I think uh, would do wonders. Congressman, what you're saying about how the Voting Rights Act was gutted, just ripped to pieces, is so important for people to understand. They refused the traditional updating of the Voting Rights Act, which happened again and again under President Bush and lots of others. Instead, they gutted this. And now I would say since they have done this, many states have updated their efforts to try and suppress black votes. In fact, in North Carolina, a court ruled on these new rules and IDs and regulations in North Carolina. And the court said they are being precisely surgically aimed at repressing, suppressing black votes. So this is this is being used to, in fact, by people who don't think they can win an election if it's free and fair. And so you said this is the most important, most significant election in our lifetime. So why is this so important right now? Because of what they're doing, indeed, planning to steal the vote. Well, as you said, in that court decision, Judge Wynn says they had re- done this law with surgical position, uh, you know, they, they that's are, their language, not yours or mine. That's right. That's their language. <laughs> their language. Uh, and I think President Obama at uh, John Lewis's Homegrown Services voted the court on that. Um, what I have been saying for some time now is that this is probably the most consequential election for African-Americans and for civil rights and civil liberties since maybe the election of 1860. All elections are important, but all of them are not as consequential as others. And this one is going to be very consequential because if there is one more vote on the Supreme Court put there by this president, then I think that you will see that what started back in 1872 with that Christchurch decision coming out of Louisiana which led to the Pleasant versus Ferguson. That decision came in 1872. Pleasant versus Ferguson was 1896. We saw the complete devolution of democracy. We went. I tell people all the time, they talk to me about being the first black since Reconstruction. I said, no, all of those black people that served came after Reconstruction. You know, Reconstruction was over in 1876. But so it was not the end of Reconstruction that did it. It was the advent of Jim Crow laws that was set in concrete by the Supreme Court in Plessy versus Ferguson. And we lived under that uh, until the Supreme Court decision of 1954. Uh, So you're talking for almost six decades. That's what's going to happen here if we are not uh, vigilant. I think, you know, I've never been able to find it, but uh, it's often said that Thomas Jefferson wrote that the the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. I don't know if he said it or not, but it's true. We have to remain vigilant. 
And I can think of no time in our history that that's more apropos than this time. Uh, Because the Supreme Court did something that surprised a lot of people. Uh, A unanimous vote almost in the Senate. I think at one time the Senate voted 98 to nothing to authorize, reauthorize the Voting Rights Act. And this court looked at it and says, no, we can throw this out because this formula is no longer relevant. Here's what you got to do. So we've done what they say we should do. And now we got Mitch McConnell uh, deciding that irrespective of what the court did, irrespective of what John Lewis and uh, Jim Simpson brother working in a bipartisan way, irrespective of what they did, we aren't gonna, uh, gonna do it. And what happened is the state of South Carolina starts saying, well, if you want to vote absentee, you can, but we got to have your full social security number. You know what that does when you say to a person, I need you to put your full social security number. No purchasing place I know will ask for that. They'll ask for your last four digits uh, to, to make sure that we identify the right person. So why would the state of South Carolina say you're full? Because they know that will contribute to suppressing the vote. Photo ID, when you have people who stop driving and no longer have driver's license, now you got to go to some uh, special expense of providing a photo ID. So all kinds of creative devices have been invented in order to suppress the vote. And that will be a continuation. See, these are the same kind of devices that came in during Jim Crow laws. We didn't have that problem during Reconstruction. But when when the the Tilden Hayes compromise brought an end to Reconstruction, it's when these creative devices started being used. How many jelly beans are in in a jar? How many bubbles in the bar of soap? These are the kinds of questions that we're asking Mississippi and Alabama in order to, for one to be uh, to register the vote. We'll return to that silliness if we aren't careful. Or just we're returning to that so that poll tax suppression. So also disinformation, uh, changing polling places. They're doing all these things. Indeed, we have to has to be said to steal the election to steal the election. And for us, as people of faith, theologically, when you're trying to suppress the vote of one of God's children on the basis of their skin color, that isn't just a political issue. That's a theological offense to the image of God. That's an assault on a Mago day. And so we're organizing around the country. As you know, lawyers and collars, clergy and lawyers, Turnout Sunday with Barbara Williams Skinner and her network of African clergy. Your own AME Church is adopting precincts and organizing church members to get out the vote beginning now. So vigilance, let's pick up on your word. What does vigilance mean right now? Share with our listeners how to act right now, how with regard to fighting voter suppression we are that we are up against now. There's a plan, there's a strategy and they're doing it. And so what does vigilance mean for us right now? Well, I've had so many people uh, asking, calling, writing, what can I do to help? And here's what you can do. Ask your church, your synagogue, your temple, whatever it is, to look at the voter rolls in your county, your congressional district, whatever it may be, and have the congregations to adopt precincts. You may say, you know, in my church, uh, uh, we have classes within uh, the congregation 
my class, I think they just changed my number. It used to be 47. Uh, your class ought to adopt a precinct. And everybody that you make them a committee of one says, now I'm going to get on my telephone. I'm going to get on my uh, device, whatever it may be. I'm going to stay in contact with every registered voter. The starting now, get in contact with every registered voter in this precinct. And I'm going to make it so that this voter will know when he or she can go to the polls, be it starting 30 days out or whatever. And if not your church, your sorority, your fraternity, your Masonic group. I think that that's what we're going to have to do and have such a massive turnout of votes until this current occupant will not be able to talk about this being the closed election that anybody will steal. So this information, this information uh, state by state is available with our with Turnout Sunday and Lawyers and Callers on sojo.net, S-O-J-O.net. And we're working on this across many states because indeed, this really, we got to say this for what it is. There are people who are trying to prevent, prevent a multiracial democracy. They're trying to prevent that from happening. And I would say, and this is, I know it's very blunt, but I would say that they want changing demography, which they can't stop. They want to stop that from changing our democracy. They want to stop our changing demography from changing our democracy. This is, this is a real e- effort to prevent a multiracial d- democracy. And so this is, you're the, you're the chair of the House Democratic Faith Working Group. Uh, some people don't even know that that exists, but it does. And so why is this not just a political issue, but why is this a faith issue? Well, you know, I think that all of us are aware of that passive scripture that to render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, <laughs> and to Christ that uh, God that which is his. Uh, that's what we uh, do here. We are subject to uh, the state. We are subjects of the state. And we practice within that our faiths as people of faith must begin to demonstrate that faith by having impact on the state and whatever its activities may be. And if you don't think that's relevant, all you got to do is look at what happened when the, this administration uh, put in place its, uh, its tax break. A lot of people missed it. But right up front, when they put in place that tax break, they impose something that has never been imposed. And it says they impose a tax on churches and charities. Uh, they started taxing the value of a parking space that a church may give to its pastor or to its minister of music. So it is important for us to realize that the state determines how and to what extent we can practice our faith. And so it is important for us to maintain that connection. I get very upset when I hear any pastor say to me, well, I'll stay out of politics. Well, you can stay out of politics if you want to, but politics will not stay away from you. You are going to govern yourself according to whoever gets in office. And I do believe that we ought to see the connection between, between our ability to practice our faith and whoever may occupy uh, elective office in our communities. And that goes from the city councils, the county councils, the governors, the state legislators, right on up to the president. I tell people all the time, this whole notion that you don't ever vote until there's a presidential election, you ought to take stock of that 
because no president ever went to your school board meeting. Uh, your school board is going to function based upon who uh, gets elected to that board. If you ain't there participating in that election, uh, look out and see what will happen to your children. Well, imagine imagine if we did the vigilance that you're calling for, if in fact churches, congregations, mosques, synagogues adopted precincts and had their lawyers and, and collars, clergy, make sure that we were present. We were talking, we are right now with the secretaries of state about the rules and all these changes they want to make. And what if we were ready in this election season to be vigilant, to protect that vote? I, I am I am so deeply struck by, well, what do you think of this? You're the chair of the Democratic Faith Working Group. What do you think of we, we saying as people of faith that the primary religious issue in this coming election, the primary religious issue is indeed racism? Oh, no, no question about that. I, I think that uh, I've been hearing people all week, well, the past two or three weeks, they've been laying out all kinds of reasons for this happening, that happened. And they say, but in the final analysis, it, it all boils down to race. Uh, and, and that's what it is. You, you mentioned the fact that there are folks who are afraid of the change in demographics that are taking place in this country and will do anything to disenfranchise those who don't look like those who were in power. And that is what's going on here. And so the vigilance that's required, I tell people all the time, you cannot get so carried away with victory that you forget to be vigilant. These things are very, very important to the process. And so I would say to people of faith, look, use that faith and demonstrate that faith by letting people know how much you are dependent upon each other as people of God to really carry out their responsibilities to each other. You know, how is it that you can express love for God Almighty, who you've never seen, and then hate your brother or not uh, do what is necessary to carry out uh, responsibilities to your brothers and sisters with whom you see and interact with every day? So I, I would say to people, don't be selective about how you practice the scripture. Be a little more holistic than people seem to be. We'll go out and, you know, it all boils down to those two great commandments, as you know. And... Uh, I just uh, try to get, and what I do in the faith working group is try to get people comfortable with each other, irrespective of our difference in the faith backgrounds. A lot of people don't realize that within the Democratic caucus, we have much, we have Christians and Jews, we got Protestants and Catholics, we got Muslims, and we got uh, Buddhists in our caucus. So we have a plethora of people of different faith beliefs. So I try to get people to look at the common, because if you look at the commonality of all these faiths, they'll all boil down to one four-letter word, L-O-V-E. Yeah, my goodness. So what you're saying, and I want people to really listen to this, you're saying this election is really going to be a referendum on democracy, a referendum on race, and a referendum on faith. That's what I hear you saying. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I wish I had gone to the seminar so I could say it as well as you do. (laughs) This is a last question here. I really appreciate our our conversation. This is a tough one, though. So I would say this way. I believe prayer is central to living through each day. 
especially amid a pandemic like this. And I pray that all voices can and will be heard at the ballot box. I pray, and really this is a pray, as John Lewis would say, praying with your feet too, you know, <laughs> being the same as he, he was, not just with your words. I pray that all the moving pieces from functional working machines to attentive poll workers to enthusiastic voters to will work smoothly together but in recent interviews uh, we have all imagined and you have imagined to a scenario where president trump even if he loses the election refuses to step down where do we go where do we go if our country cannot conduct a fair free and safe election well, that's what made this country what it is. Uh, I've been saying that this is a great country. It does not need to be made great again. What our challenge is to make this country's greatness accessible and affordable for all of its people. Uh, my dad used to say to me all the time, son, you pray for good health and strength. And the good Lord gives you some modicum of both. Get up off your knees and go to work. Now, that is what we're going to have to do. Sure, I believe in the power of prayer, but I also believe in the power of the people as a manifestation of why we are here. We all ask, what's that prayer? You know it better than I do. Lord, make me an instrument of that peace. Well, if you're asking to be made an instrument, you must be asking to be used to get something accomplished. All, that's what instruments are. And if you're asking to be an instrument, then you're asking to be used to carry out the work that the Lord would have us carry out. So I would say to people going into this election, please be an instrument of God's peace. Uh, and I do believe that if we do allow ourselves to be an instrument, then we will allow ourselves to adopt precepts and to adopt voters and to help get voters to the polls or help get them to vote. So I've been saying, I'm, I'm, I'm no big advocate uh, of mail-in voting. I'm an advocate of voting from home. If you're asking people to stay at home in this pandemic, then we ought to provide it for them to vote from home. I think that Colorado has the best model that ought to be adopted by all 50 states and the territories. Look at the way Colorado is doing it. It's a great way, and they tell me, I heard Congressman Crow this morning saying, they have no fraud because they have figured out how to do it. So why try to invent something? Let's just go to Colorado. I've said this to the speaker. And adopt what they're doing, see what it would do to make it nationwide, how much it would cost to make it nationwide, and put it in this budget that we're now trying to put together. How does Colorado do it? Everybody get their ballot. And some people may want to mail them in. The ballot is, it goes out to everybody. They can sit down at their kitchen table, and if they want to go uh, on their way to the grocery store or on their way to the drugstore, they can deposit it in a ballot box. They put ballot boxes strategically located uh, throughout the precinct. So you don't have to mail it in. You can carry it in, or you can go to the uh, local library, some predestinated place. If you want to mail it, fine. A lot of people don't want to mail it. And then you provide for a period of voting that ends on election day. So I would say if, if you said, well, you can start absentee voting 30 days out. Well, let's just stop, start voting from home 30 days out. 
And you could designate that all, uh, the, if you mail them, they must be postmarked by the Saturday, midnight to Saturday night before election day, November 3rd. So whatever that day it is, the Saturday night must be postmarked by that day. And then you won't be waiting 30 days or even 20 days to get the results. Because if, if they're postmarked by that day and you have not defunded the post office, as this president is trying to do, then... Uh, we'll be able to get the ballots counted within a reasonable amount of time of election day. Well, my brother, you have clearly stated how this election is not like any election we've seen for a long time. It isn't Republican versus Democrat, just or liberal, conservative, or left and right. Don't go left and right, go deeper. Go deeper, as I sometimes like to say. So this is really a test of democracy and of race and of faith. And so vigilance, I want to leave with this word. You're calling us to be vigilant, to make sure this works. And lawyers and callers, clergy, have to stand in the way of voter suppression and even voter intimidation, which we also expect may happen this year. So this is a moment where kind of everything is at stake, not just another election from the top to the bottom. And so I want to, prayer leads to protest leads to change in policy, prayer, protest, and policy. And I want to see all those in the street really say, okay, John Lewis said very clearly that the best tool, the best tactic, the best instrument, as you said, for nonviolence is the vote. And he spent his life living and risking his life for their vote. So in honor of John Lewis, in honor of John Lewis, we, we have to be vigilant and protect this democracy and protect our commitment to actually actually committing ourselves to a multiracial democracy finally in the end. And that's what's at stake in this election. So I can't thank you enough for your leadership and your prophetic words and your pastoring us around all of this. Well, thank you so much. And thank you very much for all that you do. I really, really appreciate you and Sojourner and all that you do interacting, interconnecting with everybody for common uh, cause. Thank you so much. Well, to hear more from Representative Clyburn, and you need to hear more from him, follow him on Twitter at Whip Clyburn, Whip Clyburn, and check out his memoir, Blessed Experiences, Genuinely Southern, Proudly Black. Blessed Experiences, Genuinely Southern and Proudly Black, which has been described as a primer that should be read by every student interested in pursuing a career in public service. Congressman, like both of my boys now are, so I'll have them read this book. For more, thank you. For more Soul of a Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me if you'd like on Twitter at Jim Wallace. Blessings on all of you for the soul of a nation.